Jim Derrick, and welcome to another edition of Chapters. Today in studio, I am pleased to welcome my guest, Arlen Halpern. Welcome, Arlen. Hi. Great to have you here. It's nice to be here, Jim. I have been reading Arlen's book, Dancing into the Light, A Spiritual Journey of Healing, and it's by Arlen Hope Halpern. And I have to tell you, I've been reading this book for the better part of the last month. Um, I've read some parts of it twice, and I couldn't put it down, frankly. Uh, and we were just talking before we came on the air that I am quite certain that if a screenwriter got a hold of this, it would make a great miniseries. Uh, well, thank you. So, Arlen, Dancing into the Light, uh, Spiritual Journey of Healing. I know that it's a, uh, that it's a true life memoir mm-hmm. uh, through, your, through your 30s, and it's jam-packed with stories that we'll get into in a, in a minute. But why did you write Dancing into the Light? Well, essentially, I wrote it because I had a difficult childhood, mm-hmm. and um, and then it kind of went on with more difficulties in my teenage years. And as I became a mature, older adult, um, I realized that maybe my story and how my journey of healing could benefit other people. Right. So that was my primary motivation. Right. And you describe in the afterward, uh, you describe the feeling of joy that you had when you finished the book. Yes. Uh, and you describe it as, as you couldn't get your feet back on the floor. You felt completely emptied is the way that I... Yes. And, and rejuvenated or reborn, if you will. Yes, yes. I, it took me 10 years to right. really complete the book. Right. So it was... Um, it was wonderful when I finally, it, to me, it was a, a gift yeah. because I share a lot of very personal memories and experiences that um, I had to be a certain age, a mature person to feel comfortable sharing For sure. my story. You know, it's funny you mentioned, I, I, I read this book and I thought, wow, it's hard for me to imagine that all of this, this incredible event, lifetime of adventures, all happened uh, to Arlen between the time of her 17th, 16th birthday. Uh, I'm talking about your travel. Yes. And, and her uh, uh, 30, mm-hmm. 30th birthday. Mm-hmm. So you packed a tremendous amount, a whole lifetime worth of uh, experiences into this book. So let's talk a little bit about the story. You opened the story as a very, very little girl. Yes. And, and it talks a lot about your relationship with your mom. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, my primary memories of my mother was sitting, looking at herself in the mirror. Um, She had a difficult childhood herself. Her mother died in childbirth. Mm. The child lived, her her little sister lived, but her mother died. In those days, they kept women on bed rest too long, so she had a blood clot when she got up. My mother said goodbye to her. She was expecting a baby and her mother to come back when she was four years old, and her mother never returned. And also, in those days, nobody talked about it. Hmm. So my mother didn't have an opportunity to grieve the losses, so she grieved them for the rest of her life. Right. Quite literally. Literally. That's how the book opens. Yes. Yes. She told me about her sadness. She shared her issues. She was depressed. And she didn't have much joy. 
Yeah. And and she had a hard time being a mother because of having lost her own mother. So you're a little girl and you, and your memories are, are walking around in her bedroom trying to get her attention, really, trying yes. to get something back. Right, right. And that feeling clearly stayed with you. I mean, my goodness, you opened the book with it. Yeah, it was so unusual because I did have a lot of friends and I went to their houses and their mothers were baking cookies sure. and, you know, hugging them and doing things with them. And my mother was very absorbed in her own pain. Right. And you talk about uh, in the book about feeling uh, that sense of, of frustration and almost desperation combined. Right. And 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 even as a little girl, some real sadness. Yes. Uh, and. Uh, and that stayed with you for years and years. And the, and the book is really a journey to help you understand and process this, these memories of, yes. of being abandoned from birth, really, is the way that I'm going to say, in some ways. Yeah. And, and in other ways, not. And, and somewhat neglected mm-hmm. by my mother, although she made sure, she always said, you know, she made sure I had nice clothes and clean house and food on the table. But she didn't do the nurturing and the guiding that parents, and particularly mothers, do mm-hmm. with their children. The other side, though, I never, I resented her growing up. And I couldn't understand, even though she told me, I couldn't understand why she couldn't let go of her past and be a good mother. But she was easy to talk to, even at a young age. Right. So I could tell her anything. I could go to her with a issue, and she'd process it with me. So she had a side of her that she was like having a friend in the house, in a way. But she wasn't a parent. And, and you know, it's it's interesting you say that, because later in the book, she processes and helps you and gives you very sound advice. Yes. At, at an older age, when uh, when you were experiencing some marital difficulties, she's, she's very, very helpful. Yes. But, as you said, as a friend. Right. Right. But that's not what I... I didn't need a friend no. when I was a kid. I no. had friends. You know, I'm uh, 58 years old and I still need my mom. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I exactly. Mean, it's just, you never outrun that, right. thankfully. Right. Uh, but the interesting thing about this book, and we'll continue with the story, the interesting thing about this book to me is it's a real story of how we evolve these feelings over time so that they have a different place today in your in your mind than they did as a four-year-old little girl. Yes. Your dad. Yeah. What was your dad like growing up? He was the polar opposite of my mother, completely opposite. He was never down a day in his life. He never missed a day of work. He loved to work. He was a fabulous extroverted salesman who sold little girls' clothes. Right, right. On the road a lot. On the road a lot. And very happy and upbeat and warm and affectionate. So I really looked to him. He was my mother father in a way because he gave myself and my sister hugs and kisses. Right. But he did kind of lack a little bit of that uh, ability to discipline or to provide structure. Is that is that right? I would say more than a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Both my parents did not discipline teach, guide in the way that parents are meant to do. Of course, I didn't realize that as a kid. Right. But um, looking back, it felt like I grew up in the jungle. Like you were rudderless, right? I was. I was like an orangutan. You weren't given a keel. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So incredibly, your parents decide, um, incredibly, as you're reading the book, uh, decide at some point that boarding school is a good option for you. Well, I start to, because of when... 
now I'm a psychotherapist, so now I know that when kids have a difficult early childhood, they'll start to act out in adolescence. Mm-hmm. My acting out was was unusual. I kept taking the family car. That's right. I forgot about That's right. You became quite a driver at the age of 12. Yes, I did. <laughs> Which, by the way, if there are kids listening, it's not a good idea. Right. And T.J. Lynch and the town of Franklin will see that you're, pro- you're properly remanded back to uh, your parents' care. But, but you, on the other hand, had some adventures. I did. And luckily, you know, none of them were bad. Yeah. Well. Um, well, I did get picked up one time. A couple times. But, um, you know, it, it, thanks for bringing that up. It, yeah. It, you have to laugh now. Yeah. I mean, that is really funny that that was, your, that was your choice of escape. Yes. I can think was. of a lot of other ones. That yeah. one wouldn't come to mind. Never did drugs. Mm-hmm. Never drank alcohol. Yeah. Just drove away yeah, in the drove car. Away. <laughs> so you're, you're doing some things you probably shouldn't be and your folks are getting a little concerned, right? Right. right. Yeah. So, so my mother sends me to a psychiatrist twice and she recommends that they send me away to boarding school. Yeah. Yeah. So again, you've gone from a little girl that feels rudderless to now being excused in your mind from the family home. Exactly. Kicked out. Yeah. And not only the home, I was a teenager, my friends, you know, mm-hmm. it was, it was, I had grown up with many friends right. in, in the area and um, I was going to really miss them. Right, right. But uh, as it turned out, it was a very positive experience. Mm-hmm. I ended up going to Massachusetts from Chicago right. and living in the Berkshires at Stockbridge School. And the headmaster was an extremely visionary man. Yeah. And he was a great father figure yeah. to all of us at the school. Yeah, in the book, he plays a role for he you, does. a big role. Yes. You know, it's interesting. We have... Um, we get together. Um, we have really? high school reunions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, every few years, and people still talk about the impact this headmaster had on their lives. Yeah, yeah. What a what a great thing. And and it, uh, another interesting fact is that you were in the company of Arlo Guthrie. Yes, yes. He was campus. a great ahead of me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and he was quite a. Uh, it must have been quite a magnet. Back oh yes, then because he was his a career star. was taking off. Yes. Yeah. Well, his father was Woody Guthrie. Right. So he was already a star, and and he is a musical genius. Yeah. I want to remind everybody we are speaking with Arlen Halpern. Arlen is a psychotherapist in private practice right here locally. She is also the author of Dancing into the Light: A Spiritual Journey of Healing, and we're talking about that book today. My name's Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You can reach my podcast at Chapters Radio. So, Arlen, as a very young woman, uh, having recently been, in your mind at least, ushered out of the house to boarding school, and even though you're having a good experience at that time, you're about to make some decisions for your future Mm -hmm. that are amazing. Mm. And you talk about this is where the risk taking comes in uh, because you didn't have parents that really were going to put up any roadblocks. Right. So talk about what went into making the decision to actually travel all the way across to Israel. Well, um, I had gotten sick with an unusual kind of Mm. illness. And when I recovered, I was driving home one day and I heard on the radio, Israel had just had a six, the six day war in 1967. And I heard that People were volunteering from all over the world, and it just struck me at that moment, I'm going to go. So that was where I got the idea to go to Israel and volunteer and help out after the war. Mm -hmm. So you go over, and your plan is to go kibbutz to kibbutz, right? Well, 
I didn't really have a plan. Oh, you did. You went without a plan. uh, Well, I got in touch. Somehow I managed to get in touch with the Jewish agency that sent people over. And so I invited a friend who lived across the street who was not Jewish. Right. And um, we went together and just then met with the people at the Jewish agency when we arrived in Tel Aviv, and they sent us to our first kibbutz. At age? I was, I think, almost 18. 18, okay. Yeah. Fairly young for a young woman to go virtually alone to Israel. Right. Six-day war. Right. Um, And this, I got to tell you, I really want people to pick up this book, Dancing into the Light, by Arlen Halpern. It is, uh, this is where I really can't put it down, because the vision of two young ladies wandering around Israel at your age, I'm convinced something terrible is going to happen right around, not that I wanted it to, but I kept turning the pages saying, when does this go bad? Because it's not a particularly safe place to be, necessarily. Um, You certainly didn't know, Mm -mm. but with that sort of, innocence you wandered throughout the country yes wound up in the gaza strip yes the golan heights yes um the sinai desert yes uh, and the west bank and the west bank yeah 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 and those scenes are incredible so you you start at one kibbutz and you're there for how long oh maybe three or four months our first kibbutz yeah yeah and um meet a lot of interesting people soldiers and yes you're also starting to develop an understanding of the culture and cultural differences. And you talk a lot about how uh, Arabs are. You had had one thought of how they were, and then you get there. You talk a little bit about how that developed. Well, I I don't know that I ever really thought about Arabs before really? I went yeah. there. Okay. I didn't really know much about Israel, except that I was supposed to plant a tree every year. <laughs> That's what people did in those days. Yes. But... Um, so I learned as I went that, you know, I, I learned about the country as I experienced it and met people. But I was surprised because I know Israel was a very um, co- controversial country right. and still is. Uh-huh. And I was surprised to meet Arabs who lived in Israel were Israeli citizens who were very happy to be there. Right. So that wasn't my impression initially. Mm-hmm. And, and you were that, thrilled to find that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, you also talk about looking at these soldiers, realizing that, um, you know, in, in the context of the Holocaust. Right. And, you know, you're only uh, 25 years out, out from the Holocaust at right. that point. So yeah. uh, that was powerful to you. Very. And I met a lot of Israelis that um, were survivors right. of the Holocaust. And I'd look down and I'd see the numbers tattooed mm-hmm. on their arm. Mm-hmm. And I would feel a wave of tremendous sadness that mm-hmm. of what these people went through. Mm. And so you're, you're really starting to develop true empathy for, for other people and an understanding that maybe uh, those that are different aren't so different. Right. In terms of their wants, needs, desires. Right. right. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. So you take a, a pilgrimage, if you will, up, up the mountain to take a look at the ruins of Masada, mm-hmm. which um, has an interesting story. Can you share that story? Yeah, it's in the book in more detail, yeah. but um, at some point, one of the tribes of Israel or a group of Israelis were being, well, they weren't Israelis, they were Palestinians mm-hmm. at that point, mm-hmm. but a Jewish group of people were being hunted by the Romans. Mm-hmm. So they fled to the top of this mountain 
Masada. And they built a city there, mm-hmm. and they lived there for some period of time. I can't remember how long. And the Romans were camped all around the mountain and would try to get up, and they'd throw rocks and and push them back down. When they realized that the Romans were going to make it to the top of the mountain, they made a pact and they committed mass suicide rather than to be caught as slaves. Mm. I guess when the Romans finally did get up there, there were a few people that had survived to to tell the story, but that's mm. it's a very powerful story. And you draw, as a little girl, or a little girl, an 18-year-old, you just kind of thinking about the Holocaust yeah. and saying, gee, these folks went into the chambers yeah. not knowing what they were walking into. Right. And these people took the choice and what the courage that that must have taken for them to say, we're going to die at our own hands. Right. We're not going to let somebody else determine our exactly. destiny. But um, this, this tra- I kept thinking, Arlen, of what the impact must have been on your psyche to have this, this understanding of history and actually standing in these locations um, that we just mentioned, how that must have been in your mind must have been really exploding. Mm, uh, mm. And, and I mean, you're learning at the speed of light at this point. Yes. Yeah. What, what's it doing for your, your spiritual self? I mean, how did you feel at that point phase? I was in the exploration phase. Um, I grew up in a Jewish family. My mother was agnostic mm-hmm. and my father I don't know what he was. He they went to the high holy days, but and they sent me to Sunday school. But I didn't have a strong Jewish training. So I really didn't know that much about Judaism. Mm-hmm. Going to Israel, the land of Jesus and the Jews and seeing places that were famous I kind of knew in the Bible like um where Jesus walked on water. Yeah. That was very exciting to me, all these historical places that we went. Um, But I think I was always a spiritual seeker. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, it 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 started out being Jewish, but I even as a kid, I went to my friend's Lutheran church and I went to the Catholic church. And there was a time I told my mother I wanted, to, after I saw the nun story, <laughs> I told her I wanted to be a Catholic nun. Right. And she said, whatever, basically, whatever works She said, for you, you look good in short hair. Yeah, I think is <laughs> she did say that. <laughs> so at least she gave you a, uh, at least she gave you a, a, a not so hard tap on the head to say don't do that but she was encouraging you exploring yeah um, she was totally open, open. to that yeah. right yeah interesting and and so it piques my curiosity are we nature or nurture or and i'm sure the answer is somewhere in the middle yes right but in your case you didn't have a heck of a lot of nurture so here you are literally uh being helped to even more exploration which makes you more curious and more open i imagine Yes, and I think that's one of the things that really helped me through my life. I was always curious. Even as a young child, I was curious, why is my mother like this? You know, why is my father like he is? Why am I? And what can I do about it? So Mm -hmm. I was always asking those questions at an age that most kids aren't really thinking about that. True, true. I want to remind everybody, we are speaking with author Arlen Halpern. Arlen has written a wonderful book, Dancing into the Light, A Spiritual Journey of Healing. My name's Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You can find my podcast at chaptersradio.com. And I really want to encourage people to get 
into this book, and particularly if you have someone to discuss it with, and you do a lot of work with book book clubs. Yes. And you have a format where people can uh, ask questions mm-hmm. and bring in the author. Yeah. Arlen, where can people reach you? They can look at ArlenHelpern.com. Um, there's a email address there and a telephone number. Arlen, we're going to, I don't want to be a spoiler, but spoiler alert, you have an incredible conversion later on in the book, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is is starting to, you're starting to unravel the window through which that conversion can happen, which is I'm open to exploration, I'm physically exploring, I'm spiritually exploring, and you convert from Judaism to Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Right. And, And that's a journey in and of itself. It happens later on, but what was that process like and what was it about Buddhism or is it about Buddhism that attracted you? Well, um, later in the book, I meet a man that I later marry who is a Buddhist scholar and he introduces me to Tibetan Buddhism. At the time, I had never heard of the country Tibet, so (laughs) it was a new experience. Um, So a teacher came to the United States and we started going to his talks and this husband got very very involved and I kind of went along and was open to learning more about Buddhism Mm -hmm. but I found immediately that it really resonated with me because it felt true Mm -hmm. it didn't at that point there was no dogma around it. It wasn't like other religions. It was really more psychological and about understanding the nature of mind, the nature that if we understand our own minds through meditation, then we understand the nature of reality and other people on a deeper level. Mm-hmm. And so we did a lot of meditation, and um, but we also studied the teachings of the Buddha, which are very profound mm. and very human, very meaningful. I think, you know, it, it can be treated, and it is now in America treated. Buddhism has taken on a life in America since I began. Nobody heard of mm-hmm. Buddhism, or right. rarely. Um, now... People use it to find peace. But it's often because our culture is a very fast, you know, panacea, put a (laughs) band-aid. The true process of understanding does require some real time and meditation, self-reflection and learning about the teachings. Without all that work, obviously, you don't come to a point today where you realize that there was common suffering that you and your mom had so you could empathize yes you could start at one point you you say you felt like a victim i did much of my childhood feel like i was a victim of my mother's pain did that go did that subside when you came to practice buddhism how does that frame your relationship with your mom and your memories yeah it was funny because i held I always held my mother in both hands. One hand was she was not a good mother. Right. She was uh, disturbed. Mm-hmm. She had too many problems. Mm-hmm. And it really upset me. And I wasn't getting my needs met. On the other hand, she wasn't a bad person. And I always knew that. So, and and I think that has helped me to relate to myself and everybody that way. Absolutely. We're all that way. To empathize and truly soften your heart 
a little bit. Totally. That's the key is open heart. Yeah. And it starts with ourselves because we're all like that. Right. We all make mistakes. We all do things we regret. We all say things that may hurt other people knowingly or unknowingly. We all have the shadow side. The shadow. And we all have goodness. Mm -hmm. And so the first step is accepting it in yourself, Mm -hmm. which is hard. It's hard to look at our dark side and accept it. Yeah. But as you do that, then you can see when someone else upsets you, you can see the bigger picture. Yeah. So this is really the cornerstone of how you developed and and, and in writing this book. And they, again, uh, it is just incredible to me that all this happened uh, under the age of 30. It's just amazing. So you're now you're in Israel. Uh, you meet. The first love of your life. Yes. I guess said Ted. Yes. Ted is, I mean, to me, Ted's like a superhero, the way yeah. you describe him. And I assume, <laughs> judging by your face, he looked like a superhero. He was a superhero yeah. to me. Well, the, the striking thing yeah. is that the second I met him, yeah. this voice came into my head that I was going to marry him. I didn't even know the man. You describe that. I, yeah. We were sitting at a table at a restaurant, and he was sitting across from me. We were drinking Coke. And I took one look at him, and I had this sense that I was going to be with this man. And I had no idea. I didn't know anything about him. Ted is from Sweden. Yes. Uh, He's with another uh, gentleman. I think he was from Norway. He's from the Netherlands. Netherlands, okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're traveling, and you you took a liking to Ted, and and, uh, you develop a friendship. Yes. Where you're just traveling together, and... Um, doing a lot of neat things mm-hmm. um, and you've got your eyes on him and he appears not to have them on you. Right. 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 And you're at kibbutz number one. Uh, number two. Can, number two. I'm yeah. sorry. We met him at number two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it's a pretty great scene and this would be, it'd just be a great miniseries. Um, <laughs> you leave that kibbutz having just referenced lightly where you're headed, but you're not headed there directly. No. You go down to Gaza Strip, I right. think, in between. Yes. Which is another story that's incredible. Yep. And the Sinai Desert. And the Sinai Desert. Yeah. And you have these great experiences with mm. your friend mm-hmm. that you're traveling with, Ruth. And what happens? You get to your kibbutz and you're sitting there and Ted's an afterthought. Yeah. Well, I, when Ted and I said goodbye, I thought, I, I'll never see him again. He doesn't even know where I live. He doesn't know how to reach me. He only knew I, the kibbutz I was going to. But I really had to make my peace that, okay, that voice in my head that said we were going to be together didn't seem to come to fruition. So I was at the next kibbutz, our third kibbutz, Revavim, and my best friend, Ruth, fell in love immediately when we got to Revavim and disappeared from my life. Literally. Literally. Even though we were all we were on the same kibbutz, I didn't see her. And she never told me what was going on, so I felt hurt and kind of abandoned. It's a big deal. Yeah. And I was wondering, what do I do now? Do I leave Israel now? Because I I lost the person I was traveling with. Mm. And I was trying to figure out my next step when there was a knock on my door. And I opened the door and there was Ted standing there. How long had it been since you saw him? Probably about six weeks. Yeah. And in comes the knight in shining armor. Knocking on my door when my friend had just left. So yeah. now I had a room of my own. And he moved right in and we started living together. Yeah. 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 And it gets hot and heavy with you guys for, yep. for quite a while. Yes. Um, yeah. And as the book goes on, Arlen winds up 
in Sweden? Yep. Yep. Living with his family. Yeah, they take me in like their fifth child. They yeah. have four children. Yeah. As an engaged woman. Yes. He he asked me to marry him. And so, but Sweden was always more progressive than America. Yeah. Because in those days, you couldn't move in with your boyfriend in their parents' no. house. Even now. Actually, in my house, you still can't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Sweden was always a very different kind of atmosphere, and it was just okay. Yeah. And I just became part of the family. And uh, your relationship with Ted doesn't wind up working out, but it's a, what a story that is. Yeah. Um, what, yeah. what an incredible story. Arlen, the other thing is you are, you know, I get the sense, again, this is an older soul in this book, mm-hmm. because you're traveling around like like they do, more like they do today. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. this was back in the 60s. Right. So you're traveling around. You say, yeah, Dad, I need money for a ticket. And you're off to London. Mm-hmm. And then from London, you're out, you're back here. You seemed to be pretty carefree back then. I was. I was. That was a really magical time in my life, actually. I, I was in love, my first love, and exploring, you know, Europe. I went all over Europe and... Um, I was discovering myself and and the world and opening up to new experiences. And it was a really beautiful time, except for what was going on in my family that I didn't know about. What's what's great about this book is that as you go through it, you get to wrestle with Arlen through her thoughts relative to her family. But the struggle doesn't stop just because we reach an age of maturity. You, You get a bombshell when you return home, actually from Sweden Mm -hmm. at one point. Mm -hmm. Well, I get a couple of them, but the first one was my father picking me up at the airport and telling me on the way home that he was divorcing my mother, Mm -hmm. which happened, I guess, when I was in Israel, but they never told me about it. Right. So that was... It was a surprise, although my parents, you know, I always wondered what kept them together. Because they were so different. Yeah. Um, and then the second time I came back from Sweden, my father had remarried. I did meet the woman and didn't, never had a good feeling about her. And in each of these scenes, you were literally blindsided. I'm blindsided. Quite literally. Yeah. In other words, the divorce had taken place. Yeah. Mom was out. Yep. Um, and the second time the remarriage was taking place, this relationship was well developed and yep. you were ushered in to meet her. How unsettling. That's the understatement of the century. Yeah. How devastating. How about that? It was devastating. It was very devastating. Um, I know it happens. And um, unfortunately, there's now I understand, you know, the fairy tales about wicked stepmothers. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Well, they come from somewhere because this is not an uncommon occurrence. There are a lot of people that remarry and the spouse becomes jealous of the children and tries to push them out. I think what I was thinking at that moment when my father kind of went towards my stepmother and rejected me, it felt like a rejection. I was more dealing with the pain and hurt of losing a father I dearly, deeply loved and feeling that I didn't understand it. It's a good illustration of how this book 
makes you think yeah. about your own life and right. reflect on what's important to you. And it's a really a fascinating walk through all these deeply personal stories. So your parents, uh, at this point, your mom's in her 40s. Your dad is um, roughly the same age. Yeah, they're the, exactly the same age. Now got a new wife. And, and Ted and you are engaged, but you're living apart. Right. Overseas. Right. We both wanted, Ted had to start university, and I wanted to go back to school and get my degree. Mm-hmm. So I was in Chicago. He was in Sweden. And you get the letter. I get the letter. The, the dear, dear Arlen. Yes. <laughs> right. I got the dear Arlen letter. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I got it. I understood. I was heartbroken, but I also understood on some level. I I didn't really know why he was breaking up with me. Mm-hmm. I didn't find out till years later mm-hmm. when I found him and met with him to talk to him about writing this book. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I knew we came from different cultures. We lived in different countries. It was going to be difficult. Yeah. So when he broke up with me, he said he was too young and he, you know, wanted to finish school and right. everything. I and he he also was very sad in the letter. He said he'd always love me and miss me. Right. It wasn't right. like we, there were any problems between right. us. Um, I I I understood and and. When you're in the in the book, you're, you've developed such a relationship with his family. They welcome you in. Yes. You lived in Sweden for yeah. quite a while. Yes. Um, and uh, as you said, they're they're more liberal, so you were welcome to to stay there and live with them. And yes, you said it was seamless. So I loved. And that. Ted had been over to visit your family. Yes. So this was a big deal. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But on the other hand, there was something that made sense to me. I mean, as sad as I was, I get that. Yeah. And I sensed that in the yeah. book. And you describe dealing with that grief at, at that age. Mm. I think you take your ring off and you put it into a box. I and, did. And you say goodbye. Yeah. That's a pretty developed thought process for a young person. Well, I think because I never felt that the breakup was that there was anything wrong with our relationship. Yeah. I felt it was external circumstances. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't the heartbreak of being rejected or anything by someone you love. It mm-hmm. just felt like it was too hard for us to make this work at mm-hmm. that time in our lives. And I think that's why I handled it very calmly, mm-hmm. you know. You then go off to university yourself. Well, or... I'm in um, a community college because I had just come back right. from Sweden. And oddly enough, shortly after Ted breaks up with me, I'm taking a comparative religion class. And the last class, the professor asked me out on a date. And the incredible thing is, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you got into that class by mistake. I did. So here's yeah. this guy, Reggie, as, as he's yeah. come to be known. Yeah. And, and he, not bad looking. No. No. Very good looking. <laughs> so suddenly comparative religion looks like a great place to be. Yeah. And I actually liked the class. I found it was interesting. Yeah. So... I hung in there and took the class. I happened, you know, I had a little crush on him. That wasn't unusual for me if there was a handsome professor or something. But I didn't have any illusion that I'd get to know the man. Right. He asked me out on a date. And so that starts a relationship. And um, again, the adventurer. Yep. You and Reggie wind up living in India. Yes, we do. How long were you in India? We were in India for about a year, a year, a little over a year. Yeah. Yeah. But you're you're really working at exploring. Mm-hmm. He's a, a religious studies professor who's there uh, on, on, I guess you'd call it an assignment. 
Well, he had a project to uh, do. Postdoctorate. Postdoctorate. Okay. Yeah, he was studying Tibetan. Yeah. So right. So you get this. This now the world of Buddhism opens up to you. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I had always danced all my life. Right. So when people said, "Well, what are you going to do when Reggie's studying?" I said, "Oh, I'll dance." Yeah. So that's another amazing story because I go to a dance school, and I find this teacher just by happenstance, right. and it becomes a path I start to follow. Right, and it's classical Indian dance. Yes, which I knew nothing about. Right. Yeah. Right, and you become absolutely uh, wrapped up. This is a creative expression to you that's deeply tied to your spiritual journey and your emotional past where you're able to express yourself. Right. And you pick that up right away. Right, but the teacher saw that I had dancing ability, and he spoke very little English, so after our first class, he came up and he said, you know, I make you famous. (laughs) (laughs) And Arlen Arlen still dances, I shouldn't say still dances, Arlen is dancing today, in fact, your new uh, style is ballroom dancing. Well, I do ballroom, but I've always done jazz and modern, I have a master's in dance. Oh, what a blast. Yeah. You start literally on the journey of meditation mm-hmm. and, and Buddhism mm-hmm. and um, going on retreats. Yep. Uh, yeah. Solitary. Very significant retreats. Yeah. 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 And again, your relationship is developing and you go into great detail about your relationships. And, mm-hmm. and um, again, it, it doesn't feel one sided. You always seem to empathize with the other side. Of course, I'm always sticking up for the guy. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's interesting to hear you wrestle with this because you, you oftentimes refer back to your past relationships and kind of what you learned. And um, you and Reggie wind up getting married. Yes. Mm-hmm. Here in the States. Here in the States. And then we go to India. You could tell us a little bit about India. So when I went to Israel, Sweden and India, I really had no idea about these countries. Yep. I didn't read travel guides. I didn't come with preconceived notions. India was the most shocking. We landed there, and I felt like I really landed in Mars. Um, The people dressed differently, you know, and there were just hordes of people, mud huts everywhere. The air smelled like a mixture of incense and jasmine flowers and other smells that aren't so great. Mm -hmm. Animals roaming around, you know, it, it it really was sometimes to me like a movie set, like I was someplace that was almost unreal. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Indians are very religious people. And so there's a sense of a lot of them are vegetarians. They don't kill animals. Right, and right. They don't kill cows. Yeah. And so there's a sense of sacredness to the land somehow yeah. that really affected me. At first, I really had culture shock. I was... The beggars were hard. The poverty was difficult. The caste system. The caste system, Mm, mm. yeah. And the beggars would follow you around and follow you around, and it was very painful to see them. They treat uh, death as a different experience, don't they, than we do in in our uh, culture? They, They believe in reincarnation. Right. So that's one thing that's very different. They also, you know, we hide death. Yes. We... And that was, I think, one of the main differences between our culture and their culture. It seemed to me that everything was out in the open in Mm -hmm. India. Mm -hmm. I'd be walking down the street and a dead body would just go by on on a stretcher. 
And, um, you know, you don't see that in America. You don't see death and poverty and suffering. They're hidden away in the hospital or, you know, in slums that most people don't go to. So it's all in your face in India. And it's it's an awakening. Yeah, I think it was the scene where your husband thought that he might have been exposed to hepatitis. Yeah. <laughs> and the doctor, and he said, oh my gosh, I can almost imagine myself saying this. Yeah. You know, what if I didn't catch it in time? And the doctor says, well, or if the treatment doesn't work, and the doctor says, you die. Yeah. And you looked up like kind of startled, but it that's, was very matter of fact about that's it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, and there was a sense that people accepted where they were in life, you know, like the poor cast, not just the untouchables, which they have a terrible situation, but even the lower, other lower caste, they would be, you know, washerwomen, people that wash clothes or had jobs that weren't very enjoyable to Mm -hmm. most people, but they had pride in their work. I always felt like they, and they, they didn't have resentment on their face. Mm -hmm. It felt like people accepted where they were in life. And maybe because of reincarnation that this is what I got this time. But if I'm a good person and I accept my fate, my next life will be at a higher level. I'm not in such a rush that I can't enjoy the present. Exactly. Interesting. Were you, how were you treated as a, as a foreigner? Well, at first people stared, which is odd because I don't look, I, I'm a little lighter skinned, right. but I'm short and dark. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I, it's not like I stand out like mm-hmm. a tall blonde would in India. Um, but they knew I was a foreigner. So the children would gather around and i give them toys and yeah. candy. Um, and then, of course, Indians love to sell things to uh-huh. foreigners. So uh-huh. you'd walk down the street and people would try to sell you anything yeah. they could. Yeah, yeah. And um, they'd come to your door and sell. I mean, they brought a cow to the door and would milk the cow and sell us the milk. Um, It was really, it was so down to earth. It really sounds that way. Yeah. And again, you're you're going through a spiritual transformation at the same time. Right. Uh, So that's a lot to take in. Uh, And your husband's a professor and he's busy. Right. On his postdoctoral work. Right. Right. Plus, I'm like 23 years old yeah. and I have servants. Right. I have a cook <laughs> who's you and the twice my age yeah. <laughs> and I don't know how to, you know, have a servant cooking yeah. for me. It was awkward. Yeah. I was never comfortable with that, but right. it's just how it was. Right. Yeah. Right. So you come back with Reggie to live here and, and your relationship doesn't wind up surviving right. uh, too much longer on that front. It changes. Yeah. And um, you did wind up separating. Yep. From him. So, Arlen, your mom, um, here you are wrestling with your relationship. And if you, you already had two bombshells, uh, one, your dad's divorce from your mom. The second, your dad's remarriage to your to the we'll call her the Wicked Witch of the West. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope you nope. say that. That's OK. That's OK. OK, yeah. we're going to leave that. <laughs> okay Wicked Witch me. of the West. Um, <laughs> and uh, you're about to get another bombshell, which is that your mom, your dad tells you in another trip home that your mom has had a hysterectomy mm-hmm. and she's been battling with significant health problems that you knew nothing of. And in fact, now has ovarian cancer. Yeah. Untreatable. Yeah. Metastasized cancer. Right. And that actually your dad knew about it. Yeah. Prior to, you know, in other words, when she had the hysterectomy what, a year the or two before. The doctor told her. Yeah. The doctor told him mm-hmm. that she... Well, actually, she had a hysterectomy when they were still married. 
the doctor found the ovarian cancer, told my father, never told my mother. Okay. So your mom had uh, had a hysterectomy while they were married, mm-hmm. and, and the doctor was transparent with your dad about the fact that she had ovarian cancer, but he never told her. Yeah, he said my mother, because of her depression, he didn't want to tell her mm-hmm. because of how it might affect her, which was, of course... Uh, one would never do that today. Of course today. not. Yeah. It's incredible. That one that took my breath away yeah. uh, to feel what it might have been like to be you and find that out. Oh. And the rage you must have felt. Because here she had been living with it, not knowing she had it. She didn't. Yeah, she had no idea. So all treatment options were taken from her. All, exactly. The knowledge of what was going on in her body, it's bad enough. Yeah. 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 Um, but she handles it. She does. She's a trooper. Yeah. So here this mom that that didn't mother you right. in the traditional sense, to say the least, right. became a friend more than a mom. Yeah. You're still struggling with all of that. Yeah. And now she's dying. Yeah. Yeah. And she buys a, or gets a place down in Miami of all places. Yeah. yeah. She Before she's, she's sick for a while before yep. she starts to actually die. So I come down to Florida and I visit with her. She, she meets a very nice man who becomes her companion. And um, I take her to chemotherapy. And we go on a few cruises from Miami. And we have a nice time together. And she never complains yeah. about pain or sickness, even though she's going through chemo. Mm-hmm. Never complains. Mm-hmm. So that was odd because when she was healthy, she complained. Right. And, you know, you talk about that. And, and it's very interesting to me. You're saying that when she had a, a, a husband and a family right in front of her, two yeah. daughters, and, and life seemed pretty good. She had nothing to do but comb her hair, smoke cigarettes, and complain. Exactly. Um, and that's that's right. what she did. Uh, and, and not be a mother. But now her options are stripped from her. And she says, okay, game on. Yeah. Yeah. And she's just in the moment. Yeah. Just doing what she needs to do, trying to enjoy her life as Mm -hmm. much as she can. Yeah. So, and she did that till the day she died, which was really interesting. Kind of a gift for you, right? Yeah. Yes. And for her, but I mean for you as her daughter. She faced death. And now I've been around a lot of people on their deathbed, you know, for various reasons. My mother faced death, death with courage and with acceptance and not feeling sorry for herself. Right. And just, um, she was a good role model for dying peacefully. I just, I just think it's fascinating. A lot of people stop. A lot of people's stories, relationships with their parents stop if they haven't been good parents. They weren't a good parent. And mm. they cut it off and they mm. cut those ties. But mm. you haven't done that. Right. And your instinct wasn't to do that. Right. Right. Because my mother did have good qualities. Mm. She wasn't all bad. Mm-hmm. And so I think like many people, you have parents that are human and they have shortcomings. And my mother had more than her share. But she also had some good qualities and she had had a tough life. And I knew all that. So I, you know, it was the thing that we were talking about before. I had a whole the love and the resentment in two different hands and accept that that was the way life is. Mm -hmm. I think for as human beings, we often have trouble doing that. We want to go with one side or the other, but that's part of what Buddhism has been teaching me over the years is that 
to to accept the whole picture mm-hmm. and not just go towards people that are you know completely good or completely bad and judge it but understand that people have their path and it makes them complicated yeah and it's the developing of that ability to discern just what you described i think that can make or break us over time because if we don't process our relationships with our parents yes uh we're in some trouble right yeah you see that in your practice yes yes in fact because of my own experience yeah I'm very, I'm very aware of how much people's childhoods impact who they become as adults. And that is exactly why I recommend this book, mm-hmm. because that's exactly what I was doing as I read it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I can tell you, it uh, it's very poignant, and it, and it led me to a lot of interesting conclusions about places that I might want to start looking uh, and cleaning. <laughs> And I'm so glad to hear that, Jim, yeah. because that's why I wrote the book. Because I wanted, this wasn't a story that is easy to tell. It's a painful story. But I wanted to share it with other people like you who could resonate and say, hey, yeah, I had something similar or this happened to me. And how do I want to deal with it? You know, rethink it. And I think that's what memoir does for people. It did in this case, I can tell you that. And this book is Dancing into the Light by Arlen Halpern, H-A-L-P-E-R-N. It's a spiritual journey of healing. I cannot recommend this enough. That will conclude part one of our interview with Arlen Halpern. In part two, we'll hear the balance of the story, along with more reflections on the impact these experiences have had on her life. So for my guest, Arlen Halpern, my name's Jim Derrick, saying thanks for listening to Chapters Radio, and we'll see you next week. (laughs) 